Welcome to the Blueprint Interviews podcast, where we explore the blueprint for each of the world's most interesting industries and the careers within them. Ever wonder what it's really like to work on a presidential campaign? What it's really like in the early days of a billion-dollar company? What do you see on an all-night shift in the ER, or in day-to-day combat, or on a blockbuster movie set? What exactly goes into building a 100-story skyscraper? We interview people in the arena and get down to the brass tacks of how they got there, what they do at the most granular level, and anything and everything about their domain. Let's dive in. All right, today we have Peter Madigan, who's an incredible, who's had an incredibly successful career, uh, both inside and outside the government, including stints in the legislative branch, health and human services, the Treasury Department, the State Department, a presidential transition team, and has started two lobbying firms now, and is now chair of a public service institute at the University of Maine, his home state, and we're happy to have him on. Did I get all that right? Good to be here. Absolutely, Jeff. Thank you. Great. So today we are going to talk about what it is like day to day to be a lobbyist, uh, something that I think a, not a lot of people know very much about. Um, time to lift the curtain on you know what it is to be a lobbyist, what you guys do. And so you know the one thing I want to start off with here today is I think it's safe to say that lobbying kind of gets a bad rap, but I know you, you're, you're a family man, you love your country. Um, so what gives? So... Um let me start by saying what gives about lobbying in general as a um, as both a profession that is important and a profession that has been uh, really kind of dragged through the mud. Um, the first issue is really a question of petitioning the government. And um, whether you're a corporate uh, individual, corporate interest, or you're a nonprofit, or you're a trade association, or you're a foreign country, or foreign company that is trying to do business in the United States. Um, and in your, especially in our business, Jeff, it tends to be highly regulated companies. So if you look at the, the lot of lobbying that's done, usually these are companies that uh, have something at stake in business. They either have to get something out of the government to go forward with their business, or they have to stop the government from doing something that can get in their way. Great example of that, which we can come back to, was GPS. And I'll tell you a little story about how global positioning system was an issue that I lobbied on very early when I was out of the government. Um, the question of, of, of being able to petition your, your, your government is important because it's just like I use this example with the students that I teach at the University of Maine. You know, you're not going to go down the Colorado River uh, in, a, in a raft without a guide if you've never been down it before, especially at high water, because you need to go, ha, go with someone that's actually done the trip before, A, and B, it's somebody that's gonna tell you where you should and shouldn't go, where you should pull your raft out of the water and, because there's falls around the corner. And this is fair in every uh, aspect of our society. For instance, um, you'd never, almost never, but let's use an extreme example. In a capital murder case, if you were accused of a capital murder, you would not go into a court of law to be judged 
without an, an attorney. And especially in that case, a, a team of attorneys with probably a group of people that in the modern work have been doing research, uh, jury selection, all of these different things. But because it's law, people don't think bad of that. Well, the question that I always put back to my students is, why isn't a company or an interest or a group of citizens or parents at Sa in Sandy Hook or whatever it is allowed to actually go find that expert to represent them in front of what is essentially their court of public opinion in both the legislative and executive branch? People are quick to say, well, no, wait, 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 wait. In, in, in the court of law, there are certain rules and certain procedures. Well, there are in lobbying as well. Well, wait a second. In a court of law, you have to go to school to have learned that, and you have to be a member of the bar, et cetera, et cetera. It's a reputational question. Well, there's reputational issues in lobbying because your, your audience are members of Congress, elected officials, and members of the executive branch at the federal level. And if you're a state lobbyist, obviously the state legislator and the, the governor and, and other organizations. You, build, you, you go in and you build up a reputation based on the experience and what you can bring to it. So there's no member of Congress that would understand every issue. And when you're, when you're ready to get specific a little bit, we can talk about GPS, but I will say finally, just on this question, and I could go on probably for the full hour, the reason that lobbying has been so maligned, in my mind, are really three. It's politically a good thing for legislators and public officials to talk about lobbyists as bad people or demonize them. They're the ones that are either stopping or the ones that are corrupting or the ones that are fouling up the process. Okay. And there's not a big group of people out in the United States of America right now that are defending the reputation of lobbyists. So they get people thinking pretty much that guys like me that have been doing it for a long time basically go show up with some cash or some campaign contributions and convince a senator to take our position. And they do that. And that's how I get something done for a client. I mean, ridiculous. First of all, there's a couple of things that President Obama never, never really learned. Because he was a lawyer, he was the one that really came after us hard as President of the United States. I think he looked down on the profession, uh, even though he was a lawyer who was trained to be an advocate for people, mainly because he didn't understand it and he hadn't been around it. But most importantly, he had no idea, in my opinion, what disclosures I'm required to have when I'm registered to lobby. I have to disclose how much money I give to any candidate. And if you don't want me to give money to a candidate, change the law, we'd be happy with that. Most of us that are good at our profession and add value to the people in public life are more than willing to have you wipe out my ability to give a political contribution. But if I'm going to be able to, I'm going to do it. And I have to disclose exactly when I gave the contribution and how much I gave the contribution for. Let me take it one step further. I've also been a foreign agent, meaning under FARA or FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act. We have to, we have to turn over to the Justice Department every document that we make public on behalf of a foreign client. And we can get into that a little bit about, well, why should they have a lobbyist and why should an American help them? All the same reasons that uh, I think are, are really, really important. Lastly, just on this point for this moment, 
I learned the art of lobbying actually in the federal government. When I worked for the Treasury Secretary and Secretary of State, James Baker, I was his principal legislative liaison on Capitol Hill. That meant I was up there lobbying for our position on behalf of the President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Treasury, the OMB Director, etc. Why is that okay and it not okay for Microsoft or Uber or a bank or a uh, defense military uh, client to have the same opportunity to make the expert point? Remember, when I was at the State Department and the Treasury Department, they wanted to talk to me on Capitol Hill because I could bring expertise to the matter and also a position. My position was that the President of the United States would sign that bill or not sign that bill based on whether or not they incorporated our suggestions. The question of whether or not that goes with lobbying on the outside is a good question because if you're going to start meddling in the business, and, and people who hear this might say, oh my God, there he goes saying meddling. But I mean it. In business, really, when people don't know the business, say, well, I've got a great idea. Why don't we just say that the federal deposit insurance limit should only be $10,000 and not $100,000 or $250,000? That was a real discussion at one time. Well, you have to talk to the people at the banks about what it means to you and I to have an account that's insured, deposit insured. I mean, $10,000 is not the nest egg it, 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 you know, it once was. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why you want to listen to people on the outside. And lastly, it's my right. It's your right as a citizen to petition the government. Frankly, the Congress has made it harder. They've put in rules that do not allow advocates, whether they're company members, whether they're working on a civil rights matter for a nonprofit or part of the NAACP or part of National Geographic on a wildlife issue, they can't get access to these members like we used to be able to. In most state legislatures, you can walk, and a lot of state legislatures, I should say, you can walk right on the floor if you're an advocate while they're doing business. Now, that's going a little bit too far, but I think these are the things that we have to ask ourselves, which is, why do you want to continue to limit access? Why would you want to limit access in a free democracy? Right. So I think that that's, there's a lot to unpack there and a lot that's uh, going to be useful for the rest of this conversation. But I think if you could distill it down to one thing, it's, it's information. It's you are providing, you're filling in the gaps uh, information-wise for how the government works, right? Is that... I think that what you're doing is, is, is um, yes, you're, you're filling in information. I, I, I like that approach. But it's also expert information. And yes, it has a point of view. But when a member makes a decision or an executive branch official makes a decision on something that's important, they should have all points of view. And to say that one side or the other can dominate may mean that their argument's better. I mean, I'd, I've been on the side of winning Winning close by one vote, like on some of the trade work that we've done at our fir the firms I was with in the past, and I've been on the side of losing big. Well, I think you you touched on it early in the response. Is is that congressmen, especially when they first get there, cannot be experts on every issue. And I always thought it's a little bit funny when freshman congressmen get asked about you know the China trade policy, for example. 
and they're from Ohio and they had a job and a small business, whatever it is, or a lawyer, they're not experts on that. And so it sounds like in a necessary capacity, you know, there has to be someone who steps in and fills that in for that because they do, you know, have a voice, a vote for better or worse. And that it sounds like on a very fundamental level, that's, that's what you're doing. Well, their vote and their voice is not for better or for worse. It's important. And all the districts in all the states in the United States are, are important when you look at the way that the House of Representatives operates. I was in leadership in the House of Representatives, leadership staff in, in the early 80s. And what we, what we have to understand now is, is that there is so much more information out there, Jeff. You're getting it as quick as the members are getting it. And we're getting it on the outside as quick as people on the opposition are, are getting it. And everybody has to kind of analyze it quickly on the fly. And these things they do are big decisions. Now, I would say one thing about that freshman congressman from or congresswoman from Ohio that you mentioned. Let's say congresswoman X. She really isn't legislating anymore the way that they did when I first came to this town in 1982 meaning that members were actually passing bills that were changing laws, adjusting laws, and making impacts on the American society. Today, you only have to come and be an advocate. We could take, for example, Obamacare. How many Republicans ran on the idea for the House, ran on the idea of repealing Obamacare, repeal and replace? There was never a replacement. The reason that Obamacare was not overturned in the end in the United States Senate was because there wasn't a replacement, not because three or four senators decided to kind of overturn the, the idea that Obamacare should be uh, uh, repealed. And so today, you can be an advocate. You can speak in platitudes. I can say I'm against China trade. I can say I'm against Obamacare. I can say I'm for guns or against guns. I can say I'm for the right to choose or not. And I don't vote on any of those things. I mean, we, we could talk about when the last votes on any of that were cast. So I'm not an expert here, but the three things that come to mind of why that is, what, what this is a function of, are the changing media landscape. So cable news, you know, you go on cable news, you become a star in the party, whatever it is, uh, the lack of competitive districts, and the fact that the committees are essentially dead, right, when it comes to legislating it's now all at least is what i've read is that it's all in the leadership that's where everything gets done i mean that you know at least the tax bill of things 2017 read that that was essentially taken out of the hands of the committee members ways and means and done pretty much at the speaker level um, that may be a little bit of a oversimplification but those three things uh cable news lack of competitive districts and not much being done at the committee level are those why that is no, not necessarily. I mean, your, 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 your thought process makes a lot of sense because that's what's out there in the, in, in the common mainstream. The reality is, is that at the end of the day, I'd, I'd make it even more pointed than that, is that members don't want to take tough votes. If you care more about being reelected, either as an individual member of Congress or Senate, or as the leadership or as the party than you do about doing the right thing, both on behalf of your constituents, your state, and the nation, then you're not going to want to take votes. So my point is, 
they don't do business the way that we used to do business, meaning, and everybody hears it, oh, in the olden days. The olden days weren't that long ago where you'd put an amendment on the floor and talk about it for a long time and vote it up or down. Now what they want to do is get it all jammed in in a package so that no one has to take a tough vote. So ideally, conceptually, political... That's the same in committees, by the way, as well. Okay. I mean, political actors are always, you know, even before this, this time period, they they want to get reelected, right? So what, what has changed where they're so uh, cautious to take a tough vote? Uh, 24-7 judgment. So um, let's take the example of, a, of, a, of my original home state senator, Senator Susan Collins from Maine, the senior senator. Um, she has voted on two sides of big, big issues to both the left and the right. She voted uh, after examining her conscience and the record and the interviews for Kavanaugh to become a justice in the Supreme Court. And she voted against repealing Obamacare. The question is not whether she voted for or against something. It's why. And it's what it meant. In the case of Obamacare for the state of Maine, there's a lot, a lot of poor people in Maine. And the Medicaid issue was not settled, Medicaid reimbursement. And to overturn Obamacare at the time, I know this having a brother who's a physician in Maine, would have been disastrous for over two-thirds of the population. Everybody thinks of Maine as, you know, lobster boats and the coast and the beach. That's what I think of. Yeah. It, 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 it's, there, once you start getting inland, you, you, you have economic challenges and uh, age challenges and health challenges and all of these different things. So the right vote for the state of Maine, but not the right vote for the party. And she's vilified. Then she votes as a woman for Brett Kavanaugh after the idea of, the, of now Justice Kavanaugh uh, was raised at the end of his hearings about uh, sexual assault. And as a woman, how could Susan Collins not vote against him, knowing that this sort of thing happens? And again, examining the record, she voted for Kavanaugh, so the right loves her. They hated her on Obamacare. And the left loved her on the Obamacare vote, and they hate her drastically on Kavanaugh. Now, the reason I'm using her in this example is the left has gone so far as to, as to have death, death threats against her and her staff. Uh, there was uh, powder sent to her home that could have been ricin, they thought originally. Um, she had to have 24-hour security, uh, Capitol Hill and Maine State Police, because of the amounts of threats for a vote. And she was willing to make that vote. She was willing to make that vote. Her politics would say the easiest vote to do was to vote down the middle. And as a woman, she could say, I've got a problem. But her, her due diligence said that Kavanaugh was qualified and that the FBI didn't have enough information. Now, I'm going deep into an issue, but the, the reality is that's a gutsy vote. And it's not just because Susan Collins is my friend, but because that's who she is if you're going to be in the Senate you got to make those tough votes. If we had today's Senate and House, we would never have Medicare or Medicaid or Social Security or some of the most important safety net issues that they are. We wouldn't have the kind of defense that we have today because no one would want to take the vote. Individual vote. Right. 
and you think that that's you said it in the beginning that's a function of so the 24-hour news cycle the feedback loop being so short and that and you know you just gave some examples around what happened to senator collins is that it's such a visceral reaction to each and every issue that's essentially what i'm getting yeah and i think it's so quick and dramatic and it's and it can be very very one-sided um that the amount of courage essentially has to go up Okay. You, the courage, John McCain's vote, rest his soul. At the end, I've, I've talked to so many people and I had the, the, the opportunity, the pleasure uh, and the honor to, to work with John very, very closely over many years he was in the United States Senate. And um, at the end of the day, the Fox News crowd said he, he had you know, hoodwinked Trump and the Republicans by coming back ill. But if you read the speech or listened to the speech, you saw that his problem was that, one, it didn't work for his state because there was no replace. And two, the process of getting that bill done was not something he, as a chairman of a committee, thought was done right. And so he objected to it. And it was a, it was a gutsy, gutsy vote. Should, would John McCain have cast that vote if he didn't... No, at the time he was terminal. I mean, I think he knew at that time that it was pretty bad. Um, and he was fighting like the fighter he is. Would he have cast that vote? Hell yeah, he would have cast that vote. I mean, that, those are the people you want in Congress because you want them to look you in the eye and say, you know what, Jeff, what you're telling me is wrong. I'm not agreeing with you. But maybe the next time they do. So before we vilify a neighbor or a friend or someone cuts us off when we're driving into work or whatever else without understanding their motives on the other side. You know, that, that's really what I've done for 30, the better part of 30 years is understand where people are coming from. So that's a good segue. You talk about the process. That's a really, bu- that's a really big piece of legislation there. So why don't you walk us through and maybe you could use the GPS example um, or whatever you'd like of how a lobbyist works from inception of a big piece of legislation all the way across the finish line. What is your role in that? Okay, if you don't mind, I'm going to take us back to 1991. Great. In 1991, we're in the first Gulf War. That was the one that was over pretty quickly. That was when Saddam Hussein had gone into Kuwait. Um, George H.W. Bush is president of the United States. Richard V. Cheney is secretary of defense. James A. Baker is the secretary of state. Um, we all know the famous work that had been done by Mr. Baker and the president to get the Russians on board with us in terms of being able to go in and stop Saddam and push him back. One of the things that became, uh, that, that came up to us through, just through a, a business connection was there was a thing called GPS, Global Positioning Systems, that our tanks were using to know exactly where they were. In GPS, most people don't know when they use it all the time, right? It's an ubiquitous thing. We use it all the time. My kids use it all the time. It's basically an Air Force, a United States Air Force uh, product, invention with private sector, to triangulate a position. Three satellites in the sky can give you a pinpoint position, and it was used originally for the idea of not navigation, but targeting weapon systems. Now... 
I'll take you through it real quick. A guy named Charlie Trimble, Trimble Navigation, and there was Magellan. They made a little set, and it was a small one. The one that the military had put on their tanks was a huge thing inside, and it didn't work very well. And so tank commanders were starting, starting to order, and parents of tankers, the common terminology for guys that, that uh, uh, are in a tank unit, were ordering the handheld ones because they're better. They're in the desert. They need to know where they are. Trimble came to Washington, D.C., and he met with us, and he said, hey, look, we could use this for airplanes, we could use this for boats, and someday we could use this for cars. This is 1991. And we said, yeah, 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 sure you could. But the planes really, the plane thing really, in the, in the shipping issue, really caught my partner and I's eyes. Where, and where are you at at this point? I'm at uh, the firm that I created coming out of the State Department called Bayless, Boland, Bates, and Madigan. Okay, great. That was the first iteration in a little townhouse in Georgetown. And we said, well, what is it you need exactly? And there is an interesting link in government where the Commerce Department and the FCC and the Department of Defense are all involved. And what they needed was the ability to con- try to convince the Secretary of Defense and his people, that you could actually use this for civilian purposes that would be groundbreaking. But here's the thing, Jeff. At the time, the Defense Department didn't want that to happen because they didn't want someone else to get the technology to use it for pinpoint accuracy for for, uh, weapon systems. However, this man, Charlie Trimble, and his crew, who had been on the original Air Force team, and it started this private company out in California, said, we can sh- you could shut it off. We can make two different systems, two different wavelengths. And today, we do have a different system, to my knowledge, continued with the United States uh, government with regard to what they can do to shut down the GPS system that commercially you and I use on our iPhone or Samsung or in our car. And we started to talk about how airline pilots could actually do this and that mapping could actually go in and you could see where you were on a chart and we were showing this stuff to members of congress and they're like this is unbelievable really in order for trimble navigation magellan and others to go forward and develop this for the purposes that we now know are really important if you've been i grew up on the ocean if you've been in a ship if you've been in a boat uh, you know about the ability now to gps pinpoint exactly where you are and looking at a chart and the charts go right in it. It's the same on all the streets. Probably coming over here today, Jeff, you use GPS to get you turn by turn. That's right. Right. You put in the, you put in the, the uh, address and boom, you win. Well, if the government decided to basically give the middle finger to the industry and say, you know what? We don't care. We're not going to use this for anything other than targeting weapon systems. then we wouldn't be where we are today. In that sort of thing, a, a company, while they're developing materials, they don't know how to do it. So they came to us and said, what would you do? And we knew Dick Cheney. I, I knew at the time the former congressman because my office had been next to his when I first came to Capitol Hill. But more importantly, I knew that he was a very thoughtful guy It's when it came to technology, that he was pro-business and pro-entrepreneurial and love to see these things. And the question was, what method would we put together to get his attention? Well, I, 
we didn't know him well enough that we're going to pick up the phone and say to the Secretary of Defense, hey, we want to come in and look at this. But we started to build a consensus on the Hill. We started to build a consensus coming out of California. And we started to, con- to build a, a consensus of technology types so that we could eventually get it presented. And we had to turn that around in just a couple of months, and we did. Now, when you talk about building a consensus, what does that actually look like? I mean, it sounds like, you know, you're, you're obviously meeting with people on the Hill, um, important stakeholders, but what are you exactly doing as far as presenting them with information? Who is it you're meeting with? Is it staff? Is it Congress members? You know, what does that entire soup to nuts process look like to well, get that it, consensus? It's all those things. So if I take you through the, the kind of traditional lobbying end, you look at what your audience is going to be or who your champions need to be in order to pass a piece of legislation or to stop or to get a rule change or to get a regulation change and where that needs to happen. And then you look at who, and we could take the Defense Department in this case, we obviously had to go to the Armed Services Committees to make them understand ahead of time why we wanted to use it, to the Commerce Committees to make them understand what it could be used for, to appropriators who actually appropriated money for this to say the technology that you're appropriating for these tanks is junk. You can get a handheld one for, then it was probably twelve or $1,400, um, which is now included on your phone. No, nothing was that good, by the way, Jeff. Nothing was as good as what you have on your iPhone today. Um, and, and you had to build a, a narrative, a storyline. And then you had to pitch it to the press. And you had to go to people in the press so that it would reverberate. And you had to show the members of Congress that if they voted or wrote letters or did whatever they needed to do to make this change, to advocate for it, which they should, especially starting with the members from California where this company is. Hey, this little company's trying to do something. This happened with every sort of cutting edge thing that we've seen over the year, whether it was IBM when they started the computing industry when it took off, whether it was Microsoft in the early days, Uber, uh, you name it, uh, Apple, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because as they started to develop more technology and more cutting edge issues, Government rules, regulations, and laws got in the way because they never, ever expected when they passed the original bill that probably governed GPS back in the maybe the 50s or 60s, I can't remember. They never thought there'd be something called global positioning system. I mean, I think that right now you're seeing, and this is kind of a separate conversation, right now you're seeing that with a ton of new technologies. I mean, specifically the one that comes to mind is uh, new cryptocurrencies in Bitcoin and all of these these cryptocurrencies is I don't think anyone in the government really has any idea they don't how how they're going to deal with this um, also self-driving cars mm-hmm. I mean that's a huge question um, because they haven't seen it right and it takes so long to get changes made to our laws and to our regulations that is the frustration of business and that's what you, you're essentially acting as a broker because you're you're taking that that this new technology that you know is is going to be a, a net positive and you're going to the stakeholders in government who we need as a society to win over to unleash this new technology and you know you're 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 basically doing uh, the job of, of passing on the information to make sure that this becomes you know something that society can benefit from correct and and I I, I mean I think that's a good characterization but I think just to take it a step further 
um, in an ever-changing world, and we've seen this really in the technology boom over the years that I was involved in, in lobbying, um, things change. If you look at Moore's Law as an approach, things change so quickly, so exponentially. I had a, an old fraternity brother of mine who was a, is a veteran from, from uh, the Air Force who still flies for uh, Delta, he flies the 737. And he sent out a note on the day commemorating the, um, the landing, which I remember well, in 1969 of, of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon. And it was incredible, man. We were freaked out about it. Everybody was watching it. And he reminded us all that the computers they used that were gigantic to get to the moon had, had about a tenth of the computing power of the iPhone that I had in my hand. So why did I say that? Why I said it is, is that you can't have progress without, at the same time that you decide that nothing should change and nothing should change quickly. We need to protect and defend United States interests, the interests of citizens, privacy, a lot of the rights that are in the Constitution need to be addressed, and we're finding out how different companies are now into our privacy and invading it, but giving us an ability like an Amazon. I've never represented. I use Amazon, but how much information they have on the, us and, and why it's good or why it's bad. Your age group thinks nothing of it. Our age group used to look at laws about whether or not they could tap copper wire telephones. We don't even use the phones in our house anymore. The landlines, they're gone. A lot of the data issues I do feel like are a, a generational thing. I never hear you know, younger folks talking about, I can't believe that Facebook has this piece of data or whoever it is. It's just, it's second nature. Because, yeah, because they don't care. I think our, our generation, I'm at the end of the boomers, but our generation, I'm 60 years old, our generation prior to that, so the 80 to 60 or 55 group, I guess, are the boomers. Um, Privacy was a huge issue for us coming out of the way that we were raised, uh, especially post-World War II, which was a big influence on all of us. Because it was literally, uh, from the year I was born, the war had only been over about 12 years, 15 years. And there were a lot of things that we learned from how governments could grab information that we, we were really indoctrinated in to, to hold on dearly to. The things that you all in, in your generation, and I have two kids that are 22 and 25, you're willing to give up all of that because you've never had a situation in which your way of life was threatened. And that was what was impressed on us, our way of life, our, our, our civilization as we knew it was threatened. And so you're much more open to the idea most of us that don't understand technology as well as the new crowd, we thought for the longest time that the technologists, the companies that made this stuff, weren't really trying to get anything that was nefarious. They were just trying to build a better product, access more consumers, make more money for their companies. And a lot of people on the conspiracy theory side, of which some are in the party that I've been a member of for many years, the Republican Party, um, you know, think, ah, Facebook was always trying to get us. That was a whole conspiracy theory. And you chuckle and I laugh because we know that Facebook was created by a guy named Mark Zuckerberg with some others 
on a college campus. And the only reason that he was able to monetize it was he talked to some other people that understood and guided him in the way that people would actually pay for something. And incredible invention, incredible platform. Um, but it's also going through a cycle, right? It used to be the hottest thing, and now it's kind of like, hmm. There was Snapchat, you know, there was... No one knew what Google was, the internet, uh, web browsers. All of these things came up through the time that I've been lobbying, and we had to go back in and talk to these people. I, I just say one thing. The thing that you use, you use all the time, is something called an e-signature. It automatically says, because you've agreed to it, that you can sign a document online. That was something I ran a coalition on back in the late 90s. And no one wanted to allow it. They didn't want to allow electronic trades from home. And you're chuckling. I mean, so who does that? Do you think Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer at the time come from Microsoft and stay on the hill every day to say, hey, don't do this? Or do you think that Stephen Jobs was in saying, you know, don't, don't restrict how fast I can build a capability for this handheld machine because you're worried that someone else is going to take it and use it a different way. And that's what lobbyists are for. That's what lobbyists are for. They have to understand the business. They have to understand the client. But more importantly, we understand what makes members tick, and that involves understanding the elective process, what it is to represent their constituents, what they have to go through to do the job, which is a damn tough job. And finally, how, how to get decisions made that actually can turn into something that's um, helpful. That's helpful both to, it's a win-win for a lobbyist when I can help the constituents and I can help my client. Right, and that's to come full circle, you know, that all of that is a product of your effectiveness, all of that is a product of being on the other side of the table in the government learning how it works. I think so. I think the best lobbyists that I have met have been on campaigns. They've worked in congressional offices. They've worked in the executive branch. They've worked for corporate clients and indoor trade associations before they've gone out and been independent, more like what I'm, what I have been. Um, and the same goes for people to some degree that are in corporate. Um, although the corporate lobbying community is narrowly focused. I mean, again, you're caring really about making profit and shareholders. Uh, we have to care about a lot more than that because I have to go back up and see that same senator on a different issue. If I go up and burn everything I've got just to kind of jam an issue on behalf of one industry or one client, I'm done. And the only thing I have is my reputation. Uh, the, the press and you know, television and all of these different things like to make it seem like it was, you know, a, a nefarious business. I mean, we, we laugh. I mean, doctors laugh at doctor shows. Soldiers laugh at soldier shows, uh, you know, when they because they don't see the whole really part of it that it takes to do and, and, and where it is necessary. So um, where we've gotten to just to finish, Jeff, is, is that you asked about the press earlier on in since the press now has mainly become entertainment, just keeping things alive, they don't really explore anymore the pro and con of an issue. I mean, even 60 Minutes, which is an entertainment magazine, has an idea before they ever air that story about which side they're coming in on. And so back to the GPS to talk mm -hmm. about tactics, and you said that you leveraged the press 
you know it mm-hmm. sounds like to get america on board as well so mm-hmm. that way there's kind of cover fire for the members for the staff yeah that that issue was so esoteric at the time and so um rifle shot in other words the, the the group of people that you had to affect that could make a decision on whether or not it could be used for commercial purposes was very narrow it wasn't a call to arms of the whole country in fact the whole country wouldn't have understand stood any of it the press in silicon valley understood it the press in the defense community understood it and the innovative press and technology understood it and you could make a point especially with soldiers in the field at that time that there's an off-the-shelf private company's technology that's better than the piece of crap that's in the tank your son is in and during that time period the press would help facilitate a debate around what are the the pros and cons of of this issue and other issues? Sure, you could. Sure, you could absolutely. Once you started to get some public officials behind the idea that some changes needed to make, you'd pitch it. And um, obviously, I mean, that's one of the things that lobbyists do. We look at every every medium of communication with elected officials, and the press is a key one because they like to see what the press is saying, and it's a megaphone for them. Um, so it's real easy to vote for an issue that everybody's for, right? Let's vote for, let's vote for another a billion dollars to help veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict for the health purpose. That's an easy vote to, to have, and it's a vote that should have happen, and it's not a partisan vote in particular. But when you start to get into votes on trade issues or health care issues where they're esoteric and it's going to matter, uh, for instance, in Obamacare, what was going to be the age of the cutoff for the young men and women that were on their parents' health care? I've got two. One's about to go off because it's it's going to be 26, and one has a job that, that, that doesn't require us to do it. She's 22 anymore. But the reality is, what makes 26 so special? Someone was talking about 24 at one time. Some of the people on the Hill were talking about 22. And for those listeners of yours that are out there that may have been out struggling, looking for work early on, if they had to find health care insurance with the, with the costs associated with it, that might have been one of the best things ever. The, pre, the pre-existing condition questions. These are all negotiated by 435 people. 535, you throw in the Senate, I mean, in, in different ways. You got to be in the room, whether you're the provider like an anthem, or you're the patient groups, or you're the doctor groups, or you're the hospital groups, you got to be in that room saying, if you do this, this can happen. And then on the outside, specifically with the press, you're essentially trying to give these members daylight to be able to actually go out and Take that vote to make, or at least make that vote not as say cover. But I, I mean, I, I, I think the big issue is, is that if the megaphone of the press, especially in their district and state, is saying positive things about a position that I may be taking on behalf of my client, then that's going to help. It's not going to guarantee. If the press is against it, it's going to crush us. And yes, we use a strategy you look at a strategy of what it takes to get a bill done and then you look at all the different mediums so grassroots grass tops media digital media print broadcast which we don't use that much anymore when i came into the business it was 
you know, the, 20, the cable news networks had just started. So it was a whole, whole different thing. Now we can, uh, you know, we can geofence people with their, with their cell, cellular uh, devices. We can send any custom message we want. We do it in campaigns. And the campaigns, you know, legislative um, efforts today are, are really more like a campaign, which is why those of us that have worked on campaigns have benefited a lot in looking at it. You have to set it up. You have to say what you're after. And then you build a whole narrative around it to either get it done or defeat it right because you mentioned coalition earlier Mm -hmm. and you know for that i wonder it makes me think you know are are you essentially operating almost a a hub and spoke model where your your office or or the other lobbyists that are involved are kind of quarterbacking it could be and looking at the entire we like to something we did very well at my past firm and, and and i've been doing more of for the last 20 years uh, but sometimes you can get hired as a specialist. You could be a specialist to work a particular series of states. You might, someone like me, you know, had a better sense of New England than a lot of other people. Um, you might uh, be in a situation where you're hiring a one-off lobbying firm to work with a particular powerful member or member of the leadership. That's commonplace. Um, but being that, being that firm that assembles all of it and decides kind of what you're going to dial in, it's kind of like being the coach up in the press box in a football game. You know, you, it's third and nine, and you're looking at all the they're looking at all the plays, and you've seen some things on the field, and you go, okay, bring in Gronkowski and throw a little fade to him. It's open. I think that that's a good uh, place to stop around what the actual function of the mm-hmm. job is. Sure. So. The next question I have for you is a, a quick one of what advice would you give to anyone that's looking to pursue a career in lobbying or has questions about it? Right. I, I, I just have to say I never thought of a career, about a career in lobbying. And I had a successful long-run career. Built three firms, sold two of them. Um, was very, very fortunate to have the background I had and work for the people I did and work with the people I did at a very, very young age, right out of school. Um, but I never thought about going into a profession. I think that's part of the problem today, which is, is that people are, I'll have people often, you know, would you see this person? Oh, I want to be a lobbyist. Well, my advice is as follows, Jeff, try to get a job in a member's office, work on a campaign, do any job that you can that's around and in government. But if you, if you haven't been there and seeing how these men and women make decisions, when they make them, under what pressure they make them, then it's kind of like being a football coach, again, back to that analogy, that never actually played. And you have to stay modern, and it's become generational and generational. I hit a cycle of generation where the Republicans took over the House of Representatives, and these were all men and women that I knew very, very well. We'd been in the minority so long. That was 1994, and I had started in 1982, in leadership and then in the administration all the way up through that point in time. And you saw what made them tick and you saw how they thought and you could predict what policies they'd be interested in. For instance, Republicans in 1994 with Gingrich in in the contract with America, they had to be pro-business, pro-growth, pro-family. I mean, there was a Venn diagram you could draw and if your issue didn't fit in it, they weren't doing it. 
That's got to be tough if you're a lobbyist looking on the outside. I think it comes down to a question of what clients do you take, which we haven't mentioned. And, and I've been fortunate over the years, I make no judgment about others, to be able to take only the clients that we wanted to. And I kept working on clients that I knew were somehow in sync, not necessarily layups, but in sync with the ideals and the vision of Republicans in the House and Senate, as I was a Republican, more of a Republican expert. But I knew that the Democrats well. I mean, that's the other thing. You got to know the other side. I've worked with people like, to this day, somebody that I have got along with incredibly well over the years and has been very kind to me is Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont, about as left as you can get. At the same time, I can get along. I, I know Ted Cruz. I mean, it... You have to, you always look for the opportunity. My, my old boss, James Baker, taught me very well that, you know, it was 218 votes in the House and you never knew who they were going to be. And, and for different reasons, they could be with you. And at the time, 51 in the Senate, we say now 60. But, you know, who are those 40 Republicans going to be and those 20 Democrats? I mean, that's how you build a reputation and you're on you're an honest broker and when you have to oppose somebody because of a position your client takes you walk in the door and you talk to their staff or their chief of staff or you see the member in the hall and you say i'm on the other side of you on this and this is why well you've used the term esoteric a few times and i think that that is a good example of or a good term to use around a lot of the issues that you know lobbyists are needed for that it sounds like and when you talk about doing things in a bipartisan manner, I think most of the stuff that you're talking about is probably legislation that's flying under the radar, but is still also important. Yes, that's that's a great point, Jeff. Um, it is stuff that flies under the radar because most of it does. It, it's, it, it's not that you're concealing it. It's just that it's not the stuff that's going to grab headline news. And it's it's necessary. It's everything that gets done below deck. You know, if you if you're on the cruise ship, you only see everything above deck. You don't see what's going on down in the engine room. That's what we pay these men and women for to come here and be in the engine room and figure out things based on their knowledge that we have to allow them to use their judgment for. To legislate at the end of the day, and they spend a lot of time and a lot of hard work with it. And, you know, the, the 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 biggest thing that I've seen over the last 30 years is the, I think, the, the, degra the degradation of public officials as somebody in the community that were important or should be held in, in esteem. Maybe not high esteem, but at least in esteem. And I think those jobs are really, really hard to do. And I think that people are motivated for different reasons to do them. But what we should hold them to is the idea of public service. I mean, that's, that's where I am now. I'm in a public service institute, the William S. Cohen Institute at the University of Maine, and it's about leadership in public service. It's not about leadership and how to get a lobbying job. I mean, public service is the piece first that goes with this. If you don't understand how to serve the public and what does serve the public, you're not going to have any luck when you go up and start a narrative and tell the story on Capitol Hill or in the executive branch. That's right. And I think the GPS story does a great job of, of highlighting that. In simpler times, right? Uh, in today's times, with a president that tweets and uh, excoriates people for their differences in views, um, it's made everything that much more difficult. Yeah, probably a little bit harder to uh, map out a, 
a, a media plan <laughs> around a big issue when you never know what's coming down the pike on Twitter. I think so, especially because in our business over the years, um, you would have never thought, you would have never thought when I was working in the executive branch, there was no one that was going to have a direct communication on Capitol Hill with the President of the United States directly. When I say no one, I mean no one. Do I mean back in the old days with Reagan, Bob Dole, or Tip O'Neill? Yeah. What do you mean by that, Peter? Well, what I mean by that is before they called, the staff understood what was going to go down. And that just didn't happen because you didn't let the president get on the phone with anybody to say yes or no because that was the final arbiter. That's how we negotiated. The president made clear to his staff where he wanted him to go. But the president was the one that came in at the end and said, we can do this, this, and this, and we can't do these three things. And it was not a negotiation at that point. That was over. Well, he's also got the direct line, at least uses Twitter, attempts to use Twitter as a direct line to the constituency, too. Just incredibly important, especially with the populist attitude that he's actually able to unfiltered access his supporters on a minute-by-minute basis daily. That's a really interesting question for me, is what is the next president, how, how are they going to leverage the tool of Twitter or whatever the next platform is that gives people unfettered access to the Oval Office. I mean, that's that's because he's pretty much knocked the the wall down on whether or not it's a the ability to get the message out. You know, those of us that have been around for a while and those of us that have studied political science and love government and love the institution of the House of Representatives and the Senate and the office of the presidency and, and the executive branch, we look back at situations that if you'd had the 24 seven news organizations going and Twitter directly. I mean, would John Kennedy have been able to overcome the Cuban missile crisis? I mean, it, the, these, everyone would have, <laughs> the, these, these things are, um, you know, we can have so many issues going at, at the same time and they're not solved. And I don't know that that's really good for the United States government. Certainly it's not good for our diplomacy right now. As I woke up today, a few of the things that I saw going on, we're, we're going to, press really hard sanctions on the Maduro uh, government or regime uh, in Venezuela. We have issues going on with the Iranians in the Gulf right now in the Straits of Hormuz with regard to our ability to move in the shipping lanes. There's more testing going on with the North Koreans. There are issues going on in, in the UK right now vis-a-vis a brand new prime minister and Brexit. In all of these things, oh, by the way, there's the USMC, uh, the US-Mexico trade agreement that needs to get done. We just did a budget and a debt limit and all this stuff's going on. And it makes it very hard for people to concentrate. And people might again say, well, Peter, you, you're living in the old days, man. No, no, no. You can actually slow down the process of deliberation on issues if A, you don't think aloud every minute on Twitter, and B, you look at it from the standpoint of how it affects every single player and what their interest is. If Iran's interest is to be able to develop an economy, which is crippled now by our sanctions, which is the right policy, I believe, right now, then you look beyond that. Where is it that they want to go? Not just the myopic view that the only thing we have to do with Iran right now is, is make sure they don't get a nuclear-capable uh, arsenal. Uh, 
And I would agree with that. But that doesn't get them anywhere, nor does it get North Korea anywhere, unless you start to look at what their dreams and aspirations are that can take them from one path to the other. That's diplomacy. Think methodically about all these issues is essentially. I, I think so, but I think you've got to remember that the human beings basically, um, and especially now, uh, I don't want to say human beings basically. There's a human factor in which people live in fear. And what is fear? Fear is fear is the worry that you're not going to get something that you want or that you're going to lose something that you have. Those two things put you in, a, in an incredibly bad disadvantage to have a discussion with anybody, whether it's, a, whether it's your neighbor about a fence line or it's North Korea about their missiles. Now, if what you can look at is possibilities and uh, optimism, you don't throw that in at the end, but you say these are the things that can happen and this is why it's a good idea. And you try to bring other people to the, to the table with you to do it, spread it out. Then you're going to have more luck. Venezuela, if the United States goes in and, you know, everybody's saying, well, we should just take him out. Not everybody, but that's what Trump says, everybody. Um, people are saying that. Well, that would destabilize the country, no question, because it delegitimizes everything that's being done. Let the people in the region do that. And if they need the help of the United States, they can ask us. Um, and we're going to, and it's in our national interest. Everything we do outside and inside this country should be in our national interest. If I, as a lobbyist, can prove that, and my client actually has that point of view, then it's going to be okay. Does that mean that everybody should be able to smoke a cigarette? Is that in the national interest? Well, it's not in the national interest, not health-wise, but what, what is in the national interest is whether or not taxes that are derived from cigarettes are continuing to pay for people that have had health care problems based on the tobacco legislation settlements. So, I mean, again, there's always a cause and an effect. Um, and I think you need to really, really drill down constantly. And that's, if the president looks at the information that he gets, and he has good information, and he has good advice on where it comes down, he should be able to make a careful and reasoned decision, as opposed to I mean, it's almost with this guy, God bless him, it's almost like it's a, it's, a, it's a golf match. He's in the woods and he says, crap, I think I'll just hit it through the trees. And if I get on the green, fine. And if not, I'll just take a drop ball. Well, it's not the way it works because you continue to damage credibility over the time. Well, hopefully he'll listen to this podcast and uh, get some insight here. But we're, we're pushing up on an hour. So last question I have for you is, how do you see the future of the lobbying industry unfolding You know, on kind of a few different fronts? So one, you touched on it earlier, which was, I think Obama technically you know, banned lobbyists, if you will, but really tried to change the process. I, I don't think it sounds like that there yeah, was... We, we, can I just interrupt to say, yeah. it was funny that he banned lobbyists and then had people from my own firm down in the White House helping him pass the trade agreement. Well, they changed their titles, right? No, no, no. He, they physically invited outside lobbyists in to show them how to get legislation done. I mean, it's expertise. And it wasn't just law firms. I mean, that was a direct assault on a community for a political gain. And an attitude that, which, which 
you know, pissed me off. It was an attitude that, well, if you're a lawyer in a court of law, it's okay, because I went to Harvard. But if I went to the University of Maine and spent all this time in government and campaigns and everything else, then I, then, then I don't have the same integrity or credibility. So that's, that's the question right there is around what government challenges there could be, you know, whether that's uh, from the White House or Congress, you know, new legislation, rules, whatever it is. And then the second piece I see as the what kind of disruption or influence could technology have. So you have these new services like Quorum, uh, BeGov, obviously, Politico Pro, stuff like that. And obviously with technology, it could come out of left field of uh, helping lobbyists do their jobs and automating parts of it. You know, how do you see uh, on both the government side and the technology side, the future of lobbying five, 10, 15 years down the road? Right. Hard to see for me. Um, here's what I can say, looking at what, what I've been through. When I was first in a firm, we actually got paid by clients to send somebody to the Capitol Hill, to the bill clerk's office to get a paper version of a bill, then bring it back to our office and send it to the client in the mail. You'd laugh today because that just doesn't happen. In fact, the bill clerk's office is gone. It no longer needs to be in the Capitol like it was when I first got there. So these are acts of progress, right? But the real, the real future of, of lobbying and public advocacy comes down to the question of whether or not members of Congress are going to continue to separate themselves from their constituency and those people that have a right to petition government and even the press, which is starting to happen too. That used to be one you never had to worry about. And take away the personal person to person the ability to have an actual conversation with you and to discuss with you what my position is versus what your position is and why you should look at an issue that we have and to care more than just about their state or their district because, Jeff, the Congress of the United States is a national legislature. It's not a city council. You shouldn't be making decisions there on the only thing that's good for one small area in your state because if you did that, with all the regional issues, that's why we used to have regional compacts. We used to have we have regional teams working together. People like Susan Collins, I'll use her in as, as an example. They care about lobstering in the industry, right? You think Ted Cruz caves, cares about lobstering? Nobody cares about cattle. So the system was always designed at the national stage for members to work together to accommodate each other on things that were important in their districts and their their states to build consensus. And a consensus comes back to the point of being able to actually produce things that are positive steps forward for the country. And in the end of the, in, in, at the end of the day, I can answer the question on lobbying if you can tell me what the capitalist society of the United States is going to look like in 20 years, how it's going to be run. We're going to have issues on automation. We're going to have issue mentioned self-driving cars, all, all these different issues. These are going to be stopped or stymied or helped in the United States Congress by people. It's going to be individuals that are now in their 20s that are going to be the ones making these decisions in 20 years. They'll be running the country. And when, with a lot of these new technologies and the rising threat of China, it sounds like the stakes are going up. 
Okay, well, China's, China's always a little wild card. There, China's but. always been a rising threat. I mean, we like to say the rising threat of China. The question, but the technology, their technology sector is rapidly coming on pace with ours. Yeah, well, they're they're excellent at copying what we've right engineered. Right. If you look at your Apple phone, it says engineered in in uh, in. Uh, why am I forgetting where Cupertino? Apple, Cupertino. It built in Malaysia, or China, or Vietnam, or wherever. So. Yes, producing things, they're great at. Producing ideas, they produce when they steal them. And they can get away with it because of the way that they function. Um, but we're going to continue to move on. I mean, the new value, the value in the United States economy has not been in production for some time. It's been in the idea and in the invention. I think that's a good place to stop. Um, you have any closing thoughts? I do, which is, um, you know, I, I, I think that people, individuals should look at issues and not just be satisfied with one point of view. I think you need to know a lot more about something that you, you're going to take a hard and fast position on. And there's probably no issue that's more important to every single, each and every American than how their government runs and functions and who governs. I appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope that the people listening now have a better understanding of how lobbying works, why it's needed, and can get a little bit more information around how their government works. Me too. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff.